Hey, welcome everybody to the Christmas episode of the Paranormal Peeps podcast. Welcome. And uh, hopefully you guys have a Merry Christmas or had a Merry Christmas. I guess it just all depends, huh? Exactly. (laughs) If you haven't guessed yet, we are going to be talking and telling ghost stories tonight. And who are our storytellers tonight? Who do we got with us? It's just me. No, <laughs> it's Jamie. <laughs> and Josh. And that's it. Lisa's MIA again. Um, but, you know, this time of year, there's a lot going on for a lot of people. So, Yeah, and it is cold and flu season. It so. is. It very much is. So take care, bundle up, get some hot chocolate, maybe some hot, or apple cider, sit down on a comfy chair, and... Get ready to hear some wonderful Christmas ghost stories. Well, I mean, it's not like today's ghost stories. No, they're not. How did we get? How did we get started telling ghost stories at Christmas time? It's usually like a a summertime sit around the campfire. Well, I mean, most people out there are probably going, "What do you mean ghost stories at Christmas time? What are you talking about?" Exactly. That's for Halloween or for summer camp. Yeah, exactly. But it actually, ghost stories became a Christmas tradition back in Victorian England. That's where it all started. And it eventually made its way to America. Is there a reason why they were telling ghost stories at Christmas time? Okay, so spooky stories that were featuring the supernatural uh, supernatural were actually all the rage during the darkest time of the year, which obviously we know that around winter, Christmas. Right, because the winter solstice happens r- usually right around Christmas time. Yeah, exactly. Which, for those of you that don't know what that is, that's the shortest day of the year. So the longest darkness day of the year. Is longest a, darkness, is that what you said? Yeah, the longest darkness. The longest night of the year. Yes. Longest night. Yeah, if it's the shortest oh, well, day, yeah. it's the longest <laughs> night. Okay. <laughs> well, we're off to a great start here. Okay, so towards the end of each year, as the fireplaces are lit and hot cocoa is made, um, Americans have actually made it a tradition to revisit their favorite class, classic holiday books, movies, songs. I know we do this. We start... On Thanksgiving and go all the way through the new year. We do. With our songs and and Christmas movies, all those things, right? Yeah. Though ghost stories may seem out of place in really present day America for, you know, holiday celebrations. It's not um, very festive, is it? Well, not what we would consider festive. No, not at all. But they were once a Christmas staple, actually, reaching their peak of popularity in Victorian England. And that's where it kind of started. Like most longstanding cultural customs, the precise origin of telling ghost stories at the end of the year is actually unknown. They don't really know where this came from. It just kind of started and somewhere it started and it just kind of took off. Yeah. Largely because it began as a 
oral tradition without written records. Right. So it was just like passed down by word of mouth, basically, right? Oh, exactly. So the season around the winter solstice, like we just mentioned, it's actually been one of transition and change for a very, very long time. So it has provoked oral stories about spooky things in, you know, really many different countries and cultures all over the world. Well, I can see that too, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing I, I found on it, and maybe you'll get to this part too, is that, you know, because everybody was, you know, busy farming and gathering and getting ready for the fall season and getting ready for winter. Mm-hmm. Once you get to winter, there's not a lot to do. No. So you kind of stay inside. Yeah. More often. Yeah. Right. What better way to pass the time? Than tell stories. Yep. Because unfortunately, I, I would be willing to bet that a lot of people in Victorian England were illiterate. Yeah. I think that I think that's very true. Yeah. So anyways, spoo- uh, spooky storytelling, you know, like we just said, it gave people something to do during the long, dark evenings before electricity, basically. The long midwinter nights meant that people had to stop working early because it got dark early, right? Yeah. And they would spend their leisurely hours huddled close to the fire and tell these stories. That was kind of their form of entertainment. Whereas we go and we turn on the boob tube... We put in a movie or, you know, some streaming service and, you know. Watch It's a Wonderful Life. Or... Right, right. So they didn't have any of that, obviously. Sure did not. So, and and like you said, they didn't need to be literate to, literate to retell the local ghost stories. Exactly. They just had to recite them from memory. Well, and, and how often, like, I've done it around the campfire. Where we just sit around and tell ghost stories around the campfires. It's like, like you said before, it's a camp tradition. Exactly. Exactly. Which, I mean, that's the one I'd be familiar with. Like when you had a sleepover or if you went to camp. Yeah. That's where we would hear them. Or Halloween, right? Yeah. Halloween. But I don't know how much people actually do that anymore. Tell ghost stories? Yeah. Around a campfire or... At Halloween time, I mean, everybody's so wrapped up into like, you know, and trick-or-treating, which don't get me wrong, that's great. Yeah. But how many people actually tell ghost stories? Real or not? That's a very good question. Exactly. I mean, we've gone to Halloween things and we've never, I mean, they've never done ghost stories. No, no. But once you find out that, once people find out you're a paranormal investigator... Then they ask you for all of your ghost stories. That's true, and that's just as fun. <laughs> yeah. So it was in Victorian England that telling supernatural tales at the end of the year, uh, specifically during the Christmas season, like we said, went from oral tradition to a timely trend, okay? This was partly due to the development of the steam-powered printing press. And that was during the Industrial Revolution that made the written word more widely available. Right. Okay, so that would make sense, right? Yeah, because before then, all books were hand-copied. And imagine the amount of effort it would take to hand-copy a hundred books. Yeah. Awful. That's why books were so expensive and so hard to come by. Exactly. So this gave the Victorians the opportunity to commercialize and commodify existing oral ghost stories. You know, by turning them into a version they could sell, higher literacy rates, cheaper printing costs, and... That meant the editors needed to fill pages. Yeah. Right? Which makes sense. 
Around Christmas time, they figured they could convert the old storytelling tradition to a printed version. Well, and that makes sense. Like, yeah. I would say probably the most known Christmas ghost story has been made into hundreds, or I would like to say hundreds of variations. It has. So, and you know, of course we're talking about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Well, and not just like movies, but also like TV episodes of shows. Oh, yeah. Have, have done a version. Yeah, TV episodes. Based on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Other stories, other versions, uh-huh. written word. It's very popular. And remember, that came out in Victorian England. It did. So people who then would move from their small towns and villages, and they'd go into the larger cities, they they actually still want access to the supernatural sagas that they heard around their fireplaces when they were growing up, you know, as children. So fortunately, Victorian authors like Elizabeth Gaskell, Margaret Oliphant, and Arthur uh, Conan Doyle worked actually through the fall months to actually cook up these different stories in order to have them all ready to print in time for Christmas. Yeah. That's kind of cool. So as, as people grew up and moved away from their, you know, home and went to other parts of the country or whatever, they were able to have copies. Kind of bring it with them. And bring it with them and continue to pass it down. Yeah. And I think that's been the, the, the best thing about the written word in that avenue is that we're able to pass down stories in history whereas before it was really can you tell it to somebody and then you know how accurate does it stay once you start going through telephone yeah industrialization uh it it not only provided tools to distribute these spooky stories uncertainly during the era also fueled interest in the genre the rise of science and the looming fall of victoria britain as a superpower and all these things were in the people's minds and made the world seem like a little bit darker and a bit scarier. I'm guessing what they're saying here is they can incorporate these things into their spooky stories. I would imagine. I mean, that's that's kind of what I, I get from it. Yeah. The other thing to, to remember, too, at this point in time is we're also seeing the height of the spiritualist movement in Britain at this yeah. point in time. So I think Absolutely. that really helps fuel the desire for these ghost stories. Yes. But telling these, you know, these horror-filled holiday tales continued to be a family affair over in England. And even when they were read rather than recited. Because if you remember, they started out reciting them right. from memory. And then when the printing press came about, then it was more of a, they would read it. So we know from illustrations and diaries that whole families would read these uh, periodicals together. That's really cool. Yeah. And for those of you that aren't aware what a periodical is, it's we're talking about magazines and like newspapers. Those are the those are considered periodicals. Yeah. So the popularity of the Victorian Christmas ghost stories, it also transcended transcended uh socioeconomic status. So they were able to read everywhere uh from cheap publications to actually really expensive uh, Christmas annuals that middle-class ladies would actually show off on their coffee tables. That's kind of cool. That is kind of cool, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think of some of the old magazines, right? And they were huge. 
Like, they were giant books, almost. I mean, everything we have now is usually 8.5 by 11. Eight and a half inches by 11 inches. That's usually the standard printed page. But these magazines, I imagine, were much larger. Maybe twice the size of that. They are huge. Yeah. But their broad audience was actually reflected in the stories uh, themselves, which sometimes would actually center around working class characters. And then other times it would actually would take place in haunted manor houses, so more extravagant. So these upper class settings were actually intended intended to invite readers from all different classes in to an idealized kind of upper crust Christmas is what they kind of refer to it as. Okay. So kind of like the type of today's fans of like Downton Abbey still enjoy his entertainment. Yeah, that was definitely well to do England, was yes. it not? You know, we had talked about Dickens and it it says that he played this huge part in making this popular in England, this genre, right? So he wrote a bunch of different Christmas novellas. Several of these actually involved ghosts. And then he started editing more and more of the Christmas ghost stories from other people and actually working those into the magazines that he was already editing. And it just, from there, it just caught like wildfire. It just really took off. He actually also helped shape Christmas literature in general. So we can really thank him for a lot of all of this. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the formalizing expectation about themes like forgiveness and uh, reunion during the holiday seasons. Now we get to like the American Christmas traditions, right? You know, although the countless trends made their way from England over to America during the Victorian era, the telling of ghost stories during the Christmas season was not really one that really caught on here. A Christmas Carol was an immediate bestseller in the United States, but at the time of its actual publication, Dickens was arguably the most famous writer in the world, right? Kind of helps. And already just very popular. So the novella's success in the U.S. likely had Probably more, I would say, to do with Dick's, Dickens' existing uh, fan base than it really did with America's interest in incorporating the supernatural into Christmas. Well, and I can see that too, right? Mm-hmm. You have you have somebody with a powerhouse name start doing something or do something, you're going to want to read it, right, and enjoy it, but you may not incorporate the the full meaning into what you're doing, right? You know, here in America, our Christmas kind of scenes and stories, really they tend to be more syrupy sweet than spooky. And if you need any proof of that, all you gotta do is look at the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) It's like the same movie over and over with different characters. I know. So, um, so Christmas ghost stories... In America, so including people like Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry James, Washington Irving, uh, they made a similar and earlier attempt at slipping the supernatural into Christmas short stories. And there was like a book published in 1819 and 1820 on those. America had like this reluctance to embrace the Christmas ghost story tradition, at least in part with the country's attitudes towards things like magic and superstitions. 
So they weren't as, I think, accepting or open to it. No, we definitely weren't. I mean, if you look at the way this, the spiritualist movement was dying down in Europe Mm -hmm. when it caught on in the U.S. Yes. And then we get Salem and the witch trials. Yeah. And that pretty much starts to put a kibosh on people's attitudes towards these ghost stories. Yes. Yeah, because in America, we generally had a bit of a resistance to the supernatural in a way that Europe, European countries didn't. When when you came to America, you came with a fresh start, basically, right? So yeah. you came with a secular mindset and the idea that you were leaving the past behind. But other than a Christmas carol, okay, there's another piece of pop culture that kind of reflects the Victorian Christmas tradition. It's a single line from a song written and released in 1963 by American musicians. And it was first recorded by Andy Williams, as we heard in the beginning. Yes. Um, The song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. So it lists scary ghost stories as one of the highlights of the holiday season, which is kind of cool. Really, it's unclear why the writers of the song included the tradition in the song, that it's possible that the lyric is a reference, is, you know, actually a reference to Dickens, A Christmas Carol. I could see that just because of the, it's really the most well-known Christmas story, ghost story out there. That's just kind of how the how whole Victorian moved. ghost stories and how it started and came to America and... And then died. And then just died. It just died. Yeah. I mean, there could be people over in England, Right. Yeah. That still do this. That has been passed down through generation and generation. I really hope so. We do have some listeners from Europe mm-hmm. in in that area. So honestly, tell us, like, hit us up and let us know. Do you guys still tell ghost stories at Christmas time? Yeah. Is it still a tradition in, in your guys' families? Or do you know somebody who does that? Yeah. We'd love to know. I mean, I really hope that there are folks out there that still are doing this. And you never know. We could have some over here in the States that do it as well. We, you just don't know. Well, I'm hoping we're going to start a new tradition. We could try. We're gonna, we are going to give this a whirl. And that's the whole point of this episode tonight, is that we are going to tell Victorian Christmas stories. Yes. We're, we're going to have a go at it. Yes, we are. I don't know how well we're going to do, but we'll certainly try. We'll definitely try. We'll try. And I will warn you, some of the names of these stories, at least the one that I'm going to read to start with, it's not what it sounds like. Okay. It doesn't have, I think some of the words don't mean what we consider them to mean today. Well, and that's very true. It's it's not it does because not have the same meaning. When when Josh was actually reading me some of these titles, I had to laugh because you know, and it just goes to show you that we we kind of put different meanings to words than what they actually mean. Way back when. It's like we've given them whole new meanings. Exactly. Which in a way sucks because when you read these titles, it's is kind of comical. On some of these. Well, exactly. It's definitely... It's definitely weird. And the first one that uh, I'm going to read is called How Peter Parley Laid a Ghost. (laughs) 
Yes. And it's not lay down. It's not the other terminology for it. <laughs> which we won't mention. Which we won't mention it. Yeah. You uh, know. <laughs> and I think it, it, it will be clear by the time the story is done what the actual meaning of this word means. All right. So it's also called A Story of Owl's Abbey. So just to let you guys know, this was actually in one of those Christmas annuals. And it appeared each Christmas season from 1840 to 1892. That's kind of cool. I know it has been the habit of young people to speak of me and to think of me as having always been an old man. Certainly, since I begin to talk to my young friends, I've gotten considerably older and than, I, than I was when I first introduced myself to them. But I've been a boy like them like themselves for all of for all that and i still appreciate and sympathize with all the delights and sorrows of boyhood and girlhood with an exception however i do not appreciate and sympathize with delights or sorrows which have cruelty falsehood or indeed any vice as their cause or consequence some follies also i am fain to overlook but folly which endeavors which endangers Life or places people in peril which would not otherwise approach them, or follies which believes not in the sufferings of others I am very severe upon. Practical joking, a very common and often a very fatal folly, is my special abhorrence. As a boy, I was never clever, nor more book-learned, nor more perfect than my contemporaries, nor than my present reader, perhaps. But I keep myself clear either by inclination or by force of advice, for certain follies which I now undertake to reprehend. I hope I have been just during these many years, for I have never rebuked boys for faults which I was partial to in my early youth. As this is vastly dry, you'll say, and more like Peter Prosy than Peter Parley. But I've never begun a story wherein I have been myself concerned without telling my young friends that I don't profess to have been the perfection of boyhood, but that I vividly remember my youth and am, as far as as kindliness to youth is concerned, and thorough sympathy with its pleasures and pains, a boy in heart still. Now having said my perfectory say, I will go on to relate a little adventure which befell me some, well, never mind how many, years ago. Near the village where I was born there used to stand the remains of an old Gothic abbey, formerly dedicated, I believe, to some saint by the name Olus. In medieval times, this name was all very well, but as centuries crept on, so fell the appellation as the stones of the abbey themselves, and St. Olus's abbey was speedily corrupted into St. Owl's, and finally into Owl's Abbey. Perhaps the advanced state of decay in which this old ruin was in my day had helped to favor this title, for Owl's Abbey deserved its name on account of the thousands of nightbirds which infested and built in it. At the time of which I wrote, some respectable vestiges still remained in the old pile, a broken arch, a crumbled window, and so on. And I will take this opportunity of instructing my young friends in some of the points whereby they will in future be able to distinguish Gothic from Norman ruins. I often hear young youths, otherwise well-informed, commit sad blunders in their wild guesses at the different styles of architecture. 
So I will briefly tell them how to avoid such exposures of ignorance for the rest of their lives. Gothic architecture is often called, and very properly, pointed architecture. This one name will help as a guide, for by the term Gothic, we understand that style where wherein the pointed arch, as applied to various purposes of construction, becomes a leading characteristic of the edifice. This sort of pointed architecture dates from the rise of the Christianity itself. It was probably devised in opposition to the pagan form of building. Some say that an avenue of over-branching trees was the object which suggested the Gothic arch. But though authorities are not agreed upon its origin, it is sufficient to remember that Gothic architecture is pointed while Norman architecture has round arches. The splendid aisles of Westminster Abbey are, also, are, are almost unequaled as specimens of pointed arches, and you, and you will know now that they are Gothic. Specimens of Norman arches you will find in Waltham Abbey and nearer home at St. Bartholomew's Church, West, West Smithfield. And those are in contradistinction round. There are many subdivisions of both Gothic and Norman, of course, but I've merely laid the broad lines by which you will be able to decide on the architecture of this sort of ruin whenever you meet it, in your rambles, or at picnics. Owl's Abbey, then, was an old Gothic ruin, standing at the foot of a pleasant green hill, and embosomed in the vine trees. It was a picturesque spot, and used to attract many visitors, pedestrian tourists, and even our own village folk who would frequently take an alfresco dinner within the old gray walls, while summertime and daylight lasted, while there was bright sun to light up the dark ivy and keep the bats and owls in their hiding places, such picnics were not rare. Nutting parties would often wander amidst the ruins, and adventurous seekers of nests and trappers of rats and rabbits penetrated the dim recesses of Owl's Abbey at just periods of the year. But when winter stripped the fading trees and beneath the cold winter's moon, the ruins looked ghastly white and skeleton-like in their leaflessness. There is no villager hardy enough to venture even at sunset into the dismal abbey. And as to passing through it by night, though the shortcut to many places lay thereby, that was out of the question. And why do you suppose? Because the simple villagers would have it that the abbey was haunted." Superstition is almost invariably the result of the want of education, or in plain English, the ignorant are almost always credulous. You will readily understand this by referring to many wonderful appliances of this day, such as the gas, steam, electricity, as applied to telegraphs, and so on. The which, if discovered only a hundred years ago, would certainly have brought their inventors to the stake of sorcerers. Yet the world, better informed in these times, regards such men as benefactors to their country and to the world. The old belief in ghosts, goblins, spirits, and elves has helped to produce some very pretty poetry. But beyond this, I cannot possibly see what gain there could be out of such folly. In these days, when science shows us what ghosts and apparitions really are, namely, creations of a disordered body or disordered mind, we seldom come across a haunted house in cities. In villages, however, where education grows but slowly, you will generally find spots supposed to be frequented by spirits and discover amongst the less informed folks a tendency to accept any foolish tale of hobgoblins as serious truth. I don't believe that any of my readers are so silly as to feel alarm as passing through dim and silent places by night, 
They take advantages now which make my belief in their good sense quite secure. The foolish people of the village round and about Owl's Abbey were firmly persuaded that the old ruin was haunted by not only traditional old abbot, who had been barbarously slain at the sacking of the abbey by Oliver Cromwell, but by a more modern apparition, reportedly by the wraith of an unfortunate Irish peddler, who had been waylaid, robbed, and beaten to death by some desperados, for the sake of his few brooches, etc. This renowned specter was called Barney's Ghost, and there were not a few who could declare they had seen this ghost apparently hunting amongst the underwood of the abbey for the contents of his pack. Wonders did not cease here, for even the little white stone bridge which spanned the village stream hard by the valley wherein the abbey stood had its mysterious visitor, the impalpable person of a white lady, who sat at the keystone of the arch, engaged in the doleful but tidy duty of combing her long golden hair for the better accomplishment of which occupation the lady carried her head in the, in her lap. Although Owl's Abbey and its precincts supply ample material from the making of foolish villagers afraid of their own shadows, I was about 15 when the events which I shall now relate took place. One fine evening in the summertime, as I was returning from a day's fishing in the mill stream, about a mile from the village, I saw a lot of men talking earnestly to Old Lap, the cobbler, who seated outside his little cottage, working in the cool of the day. I knew most of the men by sight, for the village was not a very extensive place. There were Joe Barrett, the blacksmith. His forge fire was out for that evening. Old Abel Tandy, who was supposed to be the oldest inhabitant and lived very well on the strength of being too decrepit to work. Dick Millet, assistant at the flower factory. Jim Lantern, the town crier, and others. But amongst them was a man who I had never seen before and who was evidently a traveler only passing through the village. He had, it seems, from the conversation which I overheard, been inquiring into the village news and the village lions, amongst which, you may be sure, Barney's ghost and the white lady had been trotted out with great effort. The stranger had a smile on his face when old Lap was holding forth. Never you mind, mister. I see it. That's enough. Ah, said the newcomer. What was it that you say you saw? Say I saw, retorted old Lap. I did see it. There was Barney's ghost, a hunting about in the ferns for the lockets and chains as was dropped thereabouts. A white, misty sort of figure. Not of this world, I know, and I knew it at once for Barney's spirit. Ah, chorused the bystanders. You're right, old Lap. When was, this, when was the said Barney murdered, then? inquired the stranger. Ask Abel Tandy, said Barrett in solemn voice. All eyes turned to the aged man, who, with considerable pride at such a recollection, replied shrilly, Eighty year ago, come McMichaelmas. Eighty year ago. I were a boy then, and had seen Barney ever so many times. Aye, aye, it's all that time, eighty year. Why then, said the traveler, turning to Old Lap, you can't be more than fifty-eight or so. You couldn't have seen Barney alive. How do you manage to recognize him? Hadn't have been told that his spirit haunted the abbey, and was to be seen groping about for his jewelry? And when I see the figure doing a so, wasn't I right to suppose it? Barney's ghost. 
Ah, sure, replied the chorus. Delighted to see the champion of the ghost in the ascendant. And you mean to tell me that this abbey is haunted? Surely, shouted the chorus in perfect time. And you firmly believe it? Ah, surely. Why not? We've all seen it. And you wouldn't pass through the ruins by night? Not for all the world, was a unanimous shout. Ah, well, sneered the stranger. I'm sorry for you. It's my nearest cut, I'm told. And through the abbey I go. Barney and the white lady notwithstanding, goodbye and more sense to you. So saying, the traveler shouldered his way out of the gaping bystanders and briefly asked if he was right in his direction, passed, with, passed on whistling. Abel and Old Lap were speechless at their own particular ghost being so poo-pooed by a stranger, and all the gossips shook their foolish heads and hoped that nothing more would come of it. I went home, much amused, but still thinking of the stranger's face, which seemed to haunt me. It was not a good face, but sly, cunning, and I thought cruel. When I rose next morning, I found on passing the village on my way to the little settlement, which lay on the other side of Owl's Abbey, another gather gathering of the worthies of the night before, their faces graver, graver than ever. They had a strange story to tell to everyone who would listen to them. The bank had been robbed, and more than several of the villagers' houses, including this sagacious old laps they had been entered and whenever whatever was of the last value stolen there was enough here you will say to satisfy the most gossiping of our village but the superior triumph to this excitement was a feeling of the triumph at the signal defeat of the traveler of the night before who it appears had returned to the village about two hours after he left the discussion i have recorded trembling with fear white as a sheet and with his teeth chattering. Twaddleton, our village, was avenged. Its legends had been verified, and the foolhardy stranger had been rewarded by his sneers by being frightened almost out of his wits at the sight of the white lady in Barney's ghost. This victory almost eclipsed the excitement of the robberies, but soon the reality of their losses wakened the silly gossips to a due sense of precaution. The stranger left the village by daylight, and no more was heard of him. Next day, Dick Millet's gray mare disappeared from her paddock. Soon after, Joe Barrett's tools were missing from the forge. And positively, Jim Lantern's brass bell was carried off. Twaddleton was aghast. Watch was set. But in unguarded places, the thief or thieves showed that they laughed Twaddleton to scorn. And every night, some new robbery was to be bewailed. Things had gone on thus for a week, when the magistrate determined to send for a Bow Street runner, a detective. We should call him now, from London. On the day the man was sent for, my father permitted me to spend an evening with an uncle of mine, who lived in the neighboring hamlet beyond Owl's Abbey. I was delighted at the holiday, and when I prepared to return, I found that evening had overtaken me, and I was promised to be at home by a certain hour. There was nothing for it but to borrow a lantern from my uncle and take the shortcut through the wood and, worse still, through Owl's Abbey. On being laughingly asked if I were afraid, of course I was bound to say not a bit. And with many good nights and a bullseye lantern, I set off for Twaddleton.
I was not superstitious, and I didn't for an instant believe in the apparitions of Barney or the White Lady. But I'm willing to confess to my feeling a sense of loneliness and helplessness when I found myself in the dark wood, with nothing to show the pathway but the little tunnel of light thrown by my lantern, which naturally made surrounding objects blacker still. Sometimes a hare would dart across the narrow footway, and sometimes an owl would flit before my face like a cloud of feathers and startle me as I ran. But now I approached Owl's Abbey, and my journey became interesting. As I got inside the territory of the ruins, I stumbled over a broken stone, and my light was extinguished. Fortunately, the wood was passed. There was quite enough light left for me to pick my way into s- in safety homewards. On I went, stepping from stone to stone and listening to the hooting of owls. Suddenly, I heard a laugh. Distinctly, a laugh. And close by me. I own that I was greatly startled, and I soon s- stood still and listened again. The laugh was repeated, but this time I heard voices, apparently underground. I was not a little dismayed now, and all the village stories rushed across my brain, and I thought of Barney and the old abbot. Fear was, I confess it, getting the better of me. When I heard the neigh of a horse, somehow this touch of mortality for I had never heard of the ghost of a horse in the abbey, reassured me, and I listened for greater intentness. The sound of hooves, trampling, and some loud voices in correction not now followed, and guided by them. I found that they proceeded from the old cellars in the refectory of the abbey. Kneeling down cautiously, I peeped through two worn-out pillars and saw what the stranger traveler, another man whom I had never seen, and Millet's gray mare. There sat the man squabbling over certain property, pilfered, no doubt, from our villagers, and there tethered up to a stone was the unhappy old nag, who missed her warm quarters and regular feeds greatly. In a moment, I was decided, stepping cautiously away as I posted out of Owl's Abbey, perfectly free from the alarm now, full of joy at having found out the robbers, and determined to lose no time in setting justice on their track. On I ran, and on reaching the white lady's bridge, there, sure enough, was a white figure sitting on the keystone of the arch. Mindful of my late experience, I went unflinchingly on. A cheery voice bade me, Good night! It was a countryman in a smock frock, resting on the bridge, evidently a stranger, or he would have respected the local tradition more. I told him what I had seen, and he kindly returned with me. On the reaching Twaddleton, I told my story. And to my delight, a quiet man who had listened carefully to my narrative turned out to, the, turned out to be the Bow Street Runner. A cavalcade now formed. Barrett and Millet and Jim Lantern and m- many more shammed out through their compunctions by my experience, joined the troop, and without losing time, we returned to Owl's Abbey. Here, cautiously divided our forces... The detective made me lead the way to the spot where I had heard the voices. As we approached, a neigh was heard. "'My old mare for nine pence!' roared Millet in in exactes. In a moment there was a rush, a struggle, and the two rogues, regular London thieves, were collared and handcuffed. Having paid the wave to plunder by trading on the foolish superstitions of the villagers, the principal robber had feigned alarm to disarm suspicion.' and used to return nightly to thieve 
knowing that while he and his accomplice and his plunder lay in Owl's Abbey, they were safe enough. The villains were punished in due course, and Twaddleton, having seen for itself that the reputed ghosts were all a myth, returned to its senses and used a shortcut afterwards. And this is how the Twaddleton ghost was laid. What the hell was that? <laughs> I mean, I'm over here doing this, sleepy head bob. That's a good story. How do you figure? <laughs> it's got robbers and ghosts and cops. Well, excuse me why I stifle a yawn here. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... I mean, I, I guess that just goes to show that today we're so used to, you know, tablets and phones and music and, you know, just we have everything at our fingertips. Um... And this is what they did for entertainment back then. And for us today, or at least for me, it was a snooze fest. I mean, really, what the hell was that? <laughs> I was enthralled. <laughs> yeah, you looked enthralled. I'd seen you doing the head bobbies you were reading. <laughs> <laughs> Slipped through it. I don't know what happened. Where was I? <laughs> You're sleep reading again. <laughs> <laughs> Happens more than I like to admit. Here's the thing is that the funny thing about that story is it it was ghost like yeah I don't know what that was there was no I mean there was no real specter in that avenue no but it just shows you that he he just didn't believe in ghosts well we we, we have a lot of those people today we do what I laugh about is his line of saying, well, you know, those who are more educated. Okay. We don't believe in ghosts. Oh. So it's only those who, you know, don't have any education that believe in ghosts. Yeah, because we too dumb. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and what's with the name of the town, Twaddleton? <laughs> I don't know. I think that was the most entertaining part. Twaddleton. It's like, where are you from? I don't want to say. Are you from East Twaddleton or West Twaddleton? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, if that one doesn't have you on the edge of your seat. <laughs> this maybe... next one surely will not as well. <laughs> this one will be probably very similar. All right. Let's see if we can get through this one, huh? Let's do it. Okay. This one's called The Doll's Ghost. It was a terrible accident, and for one moment, the splendid machinery of Cranston House got out of gear and stood still. The butler emerged from the retirement in which he spent his elegant leisure. Two grooms of the chambers appeared simultaneously from opposite directions. There were actually housemaids on the grand staircase and those who remember the facts most exactly assert that miss pringle herself positively stood upon the landing miss pringle was the housekeeper as for the head nurse the under nurse and the nursery maid their feelings cannot be described the head nurse laid one hand upon the polished marble and stared stupidly before her 
The under nurse stood rigid and pale, leaning against the polished marble wall, and the nursery maid collapsed and sat down upon the polished marble step, just beyond the limits of the velvet carpet, and frankly burst into tears. The lady, Gwendolyn Lancaster Douglas Scroop, youngest daughter of the ninth Duke of Cranston, and aged six years and three months, picked herself up quite alone and sat down on the third step from the foot of the grand staircase in Cranston House. Oh, ejaculated the butler, and he disappeared again. Ah, responded the grooms of the chambers, as they also went away. It's only that doll, Miss Pringle was distinctly heard to say in a tone of contempt. The undernurse heard her say it. Then the three nurses gathered around Lady Gwendolyn and patted her and gave her unhealthy things out of their pockets and hurried her out of Cranston House as fast as they could, lest it should be found out upstairs that they had allowed the Lady Gwendolyn Lancaster Douglas group to tumble down the grand staircase with her doll in her arms. And as the doll was badly broken, the nursery maid carried it with the pieces wrapped up in Lady Gwendolyn's little cloak. It was not far to Hyde Park, and when they had reached a quiet place, they took means to find out that Lady Gwendolyn had no bruises. For the carpet was very thick and soft, and there was thick stuff under it to make it even softer. Lady Gwendolyn Douglas Scroop sometimes yelled, but she never cried. It was because she had yelled that the nurses had allowed her to go downstairs alone with Nina, the doll, under one arm while she steadied herself with her other hand on the railing and trod upon the polished marble steps beyond the edge of the carpet. So she had fallen, and Nina had come to grief. When the nurses were quite sure that she was not hurt, they unwrapped the doll and looked at her in turn. She had been a very beautiful doll, a very large and fair and healthy, with real yellow hair and eyelids that would open and shut over grown-up dark eyes. Moreover, when you moved her right arm up and down, she said Papa, and when you moved the left, she said Mama, very distinctively. I heard her say Pa when she fell, said the undernurse, who heard everything, but she ought to have said Papa. That's because her arm went up when she hit the step, said the head nurse. She'll say the other Pa when I put it down again. Pa, said Nina, as her right arm was pushed down, and speaking through her broken face. It was cracked right across from the upper corner of the forehead with a hideous gash through the nose and down to the little frilled collar of the pale green silk Mother Hubbard frock, and two little three-cornered pieces of porcelain had fallen out. I'm sure it's a wonder she can speak at all, being all smashed, said the undernurse. You'll have to take her to Miss Puckler, she said, superior, it's not far, and you'd better go at once. Lady Gwendolyn was occupied in digging a hole in the ground with a little spade and paid no attention to the nurses. What are you doing? inquired the nursery maid, looking on. Nina's dead. I'm digging her a grave, replied her ladyship thoughtfully. Oh, she'll come to life again all right, said the nursery maid. The undernurse wrapped Nina up again and departed. Fortunately, a kind soldier with very long legs and a very small cap happened to be there. And as he had nothing to do, 
he offered to see the undernurse safely to Miss Puckler's and back. Miss Bernard Puckler and his little daughter lived in a little house in a little alley, which led out of a quiet little street not very far from Belgrave Square. He was the great doll doctor, and his extensive practice lay in the most aristocratic quarter. He mended dolls of all sizes and ages, boy dolls and girl dolls, baby dolls in long clothes, and grown-up dolls in fashionable gowns, talking dolls and dumb dolls, those that shut their eyes when they lay down, and those whose eyes had been shut for them by means of a mysterious wire. His daughter, Elsie, was only just over 12 years old, but she was already very clever at mending dolls, clothes, and doing their hair, which is harder than you might think. Though the dolls sit quiet and still while being done. Mr. Puckler had originally been a German, but he had dissolved his nationality in the Ocean of London many years ago, like a great many foreigners did. He still had one or two German friends, however, who came on Saturday evenings and smoked with him and played scat with him for farthing points and called him Herr Doctor, which seemed to please Mr. Puckler very much. He looked older than he was, for his beard was rather long and ragged, and his hair was grizzled and thin, and he wore horned rim spectacles. As for Elsie, she was a thin, pale child, very quiet and neat, with dark eyes and brown hair that was plaited down her back and tied with a bit of black ribbon. She mended dolls' clothes and took the dolls back to their homes when they were quite strong again. The house was a little one but too big for two people who lived in it. There was a small sitting room on the street, and the workshop was at the back, and there were three rooms upstairs. But the father and daughter lived most of their time in the workshop because they were generally at work even in the evenings. Mr. Puckler lay Nina on the table and looked at her a long time, till the tears began to fill his eyes behind the horn-rimmed spectacles. He was a very susceptible man, and he often fell in love with the dolls he mended and found it hard to part with them when they had smiled at him for a few days. They were real little people to him, with characters and thoughts and feelings of their own, and he was very tender with them all. But some attracted him especially from the first, and when they were brought to him, maimed and injured, their state seemed to so pitiful that he, the tears came easily. You must remember that he lived amongst dolls during the great part of his life, and he understood them. How do you know they feel nothing, he went to say to Elsie. You must be gentle with them. It costs nothing to be kind to l little beings, and perhaps it makes a difference to them. And Elsie understood him, because she was a child, and she knew that she was more to him than all the dolls. He fell in love with Nina at first sight, perhaps because her beautiful brown glass eyes were something like Elsie's own. And he loved Elsie first and best, with all his heart. And besides... It was very sorrowful. It was a very sorrowful case. Nina had evidently not been long in the world, for her complexion was perfect. Her hair was smooth where it should be smooth and curly where it should be curly, and her silk clothes were perfectly new. But across her face was that frightful gash, like a saber cut, deep and shadowy within, but clean and sharp at the edges. When he tenderly pressed her head, to close the gaping wound, the edges made a fine grating sound that was painful to hear, and the lids of the dark eyes quivered and trembled 
as though Nina were suffering dreadfully. Poor Nina, he exclaimed sorrowfully, but I shall not hurt you much, though you will take a long time to get strong. He always asked the names of the broken dolls when they were brought to him, and sometimes the people knew what the children called them and told him. He liked Nina, for a name, altogether, and in every way she pleased him more than any doll he had seen for many years, and he felt drawn to her and made up his mind to make her perfectly strong and sound, no matter how much labor it might cost him. Mr. Puckler worked patiently, a little at a time, and Elsie watched him. She could do nothing for poor Nina, whose clothes needed no mending. The longer the doll doctor worked, the more fond he became of the yellow hair and the beautiful brown glass eyes. He sometimes forgot all the other dolls that were waiting to be mended, laying side by side on a shelf, and sat for an hour gazing at Nina's face while he racked his ingenuity for some new invention by which to hide even the smallest trace of the terrible accident. She was wonderfully mended. Even he was obliged to admit that, but the scar was still visible in his keen eyes, a very fine line right across the face, downwards from right to left. Yet all the conditions had been most favorable for a cure, Since the cement had set quite hard at the first attempt, and the weather had been fine and dry, which makes a great difference in a doll's hospital. At last he knew that he could do no more, and the under-nurse had already come twice to see whether the job was finished, and she coarsely expressed it. Nina is not quite strong yet, Mr. Puckler had answered each time, for he could not make up his mind to face the parting. And now he sat before the square deal table at which he worked and Nina lay before him in the la- for the last time with a big brown paper box beside her. It stood there like her coffin, waiting for her, he thought. He must put her into it and lay tissue paper over her dear face and then put on the lid. And at the thought of tying the string, his sight was dim with tears again. He was never to look into the glassy depths of the beautiful brown eyes anymore, nor hear the little wooden voice say, Papa and Mama. It was a very painful moment. In the vain hope of gaining time before the separation, he took up the little sticky bottles of cement and glue and gum and color, looking at each one in turn, and then at Nina's face. And all his small tools lay there, neatly arranged in a row. But he knew that he could not use them again for Nina. She was quite strong at last, and in a country where there should be no cruel children to hurt her, she might live a hundred years with only that almost imperceptible line across her face to tell a fearful thing that had befallen her on the marble steps of Cranston House. Suddenly, Mr. Puckler's heart was quite full, and he rose abruptly from his seat and turned away. Elsie, he said unsteadily, you must do it for me. I cannot bear to see her go into the box." So he went and stood at the window with his back turned while Elsie did what he had not the heart to do. Is it done? he asked, not turning around. Then take her away, my dear. Put on your hat and take her to Cranston House quickly. And when you are gone, I will turn around. Elsie was used to her father's queer ways with the dolls. And though she had never seen him so much moved by a parting, she was not much surprised. Come back quickly, he said when he heard her hand on the latch. It is growing late, and I should not send you at this hour, but I cannot bear to look forward to it any more. When Elsie was gone, he left the window and sat in his place before the table again, 
to wait for the child to come back. He touched the place where Nina had lain, very gently, and he recalled the softly tinted pink face and the glass eyes and the ringlets of yellow hair till he could almost see them. The evenings were long, for it was late in the spring, but it began to grow dark soon, and Mr. Puckler wondered why Elsie did not come back. She'd been gone an hour and a half, and that was much longer than he expected, for it was barely half a mile from Belgrave Square to Cranston House. He reflected that the child might have been kept waiting, but as the twilight deepened, he grew anxious. He walked up and down in the dim workshop, no longer thinking of Nina, but of Elsie, his own living child, whom he loved. An undefinable, disquieting sensation came upon him by fine degrees, and chillness and a faint stirring of his thin hair, joined with a wish to be in any company rather than be alone much longer. It was the beginning of fear. He told himself in strong German English that he was a foolish old man, and he began to feel about for the matches in the dusk. He knew just where they should be, for he always kept them in the same place, close to the little tin box that held bits of sealing wax of various colors, for some kinds of mending. But somehow he could not find the matches in the gloom. Something had happened to Elsie, he was sure. And as his fear increased, he felt as though it might be allayed if he could get a light and see what time it was. Then he called himself a foolish old man again, and the sound of his own voice startled him in the dark. He could not find the matches. The window was gray still. He might see what time it was if he went close to it, and he could go and get the matches out of the cupboard afterwards. He stood back from the table to get out of the way of the chair and began to cross the board floor. Something was following him in the dark. There was a small pattering, as of tiny feet upon the boards. He stopped and listened, and the roots of his hair tingled. It was nothing, and he was a foolish old man. He made two steps more, and he was sure that he heard a little, the little pattering again. He turned his back to the window, leaning against the sash, so that the panes began to crack, and he faced the dark. Everything was quite still and it smelt of paste and cement and wood fillings as usual. "'Is that you, Elsie?' he asked, and he was surprised by the fear in his voice. There was no answer in the room, and he held up his watch and tried to make out what time it was by the gray dusk that was just not darkness. So far as he could see, it was within two or three minutes of ten o'clock. He had been a long time alone.' He was shocked and frightened for Elsie. Out in London so late, and he almost ran across the room to the door. As he fumbled for the latch, he distinctively heard the running of little feet after him. Mice, he exclaimed feebly, just as he got the door open. He shut it quickly behind him and felt as though some cold thing had settled on his back and were writhing upon him. The passage was quite dark, but he found his hat and was out in the alley in a moment breathing more freely, and surprised to find how much light there still was in the open air. He could see the pavement clearly under his feet, and far off in the street to which the alley led, he could hear the laughter and calls of children, playing some game out of doors. He wondered how he could have been so nervous, and for an instant he thought of going back into the house to wait quietly for Elsie. But instantly he felt that nervous fright of something stealing over him again. 
In any case, it was better to walk up to Cranston House and ask the servants about the child. One of the women had perhaps taken a fancy to her and was even now giving her tea and cake. He walked quickly to Belgrave Square and then up the broad streets, listening as he went, whenever there was no other sound for the tiny footsteps. But he heard nothing and was laughing at himself when he rang the servant's bell at the big house. Of course the child must be there. The person who opened the door was quite an inferior person, for it was a black door, but affected the manners of the front and stared at Mr. Puckler super callously under the strong light. No little girl had been seen, and he knew nothing about no dolls. She is my little girl, said Mr. Puckler, tremulously, for all his anxiety was returning tenfold, and I am afraid something has happened. The inferior person said rudely that nothing could have happened to her in that house because she had not been there, which was a jolly good reason why. And Mr. Puckler was obliged to admit that the man ought to know as it was his business to keep the door and let people in. He wished to be allowed to speak to the undernurse who knew him, but the man was ruder than ever and finally shut the door in his face. When the doll doctor was alone in the street, he steadied himself by the railing for he felt as though he were breaking in two, just as some dolls break in the middle of the backbone. Presently, he knew that he must be doing something to find Elsie, and that gave him strength. He began to walk as quickly as he could through the streets, following every highway and byway which his little girl might have taken on her errand. He also asked several policemen in vain if they had seen her, but most of them answered him kindly, for they saw that he was a sober man and in his right senses, and some of them had little girls of their own. It was one o'clock in the morning when he went up to his own door again, worn out and hopeless and broken-hearted. As he turned the key in the lock, his heart stood still, for he knew that he was awake and not dreaming, and that he really heard those tiny footsteps pattering to meet him inside the house along the passage. But he was too unhappy to be much frightened anymore, and his heart went on again with a dull regular pain that ground its way through him with every pulse. So he went in and hung up his hat in the dark and found the matches in the cupboard and the candlestick in its place in the corner. Mr. Puckler was so overcome and so completely worn out that he sat down in his chair before the work table and almost fainted. As his face dropped forward upon his folded hands, beside him the solitary candle burned steadily with a low flame in the still warm air. Elsie, Elsie, he moaned against his yellow knuckles. And that was all he could say. And it was no relief to him. On the contrary, the very sound of the name was a new and sharp pain that pierced his ears and his head and his very soul. For every time he repeated the name, it meant that Elsie was dead, somewhere out in the streets of London in the dark. He was so terribly hurt that he did not even feel something pulling gently at the the skirt of his old coat, so gently that it was like a nibbling of a tiny mouse. He might have thought it was really a mouse if he had noticed it. Elsie, Elsie, he groaned right against his hands. Then a cool breath stirred his thin hair, and the low flame of the one candle dropped down almost to a mere spark, not flickering as though a drought were going to blow it out, but just dropping down as if it were tired out. Mr. Puckler felt his hands stiffening with fright under his face, 
and there was a faint rustling sound, like some small silk thing blowing in a gentle breeze. He sat up straight, stark and scared, and a small wooden voice spoke in stillness. Papa, it said, with a break between the syllables. Mr. Puckler stood up in a single jump, and his chair fell over backwards with a smashing noise upon the wooden floor. The candle had almost gone out. It was Nina's doll's voice that had spoken, and he should have known it among the voices of a hundred other dolls. And yet there was something more in it, a little human ring with a pitiful cry and a call for help, and all the well of a hurt child. Mr. Puckler stood up, stark and stiff, and tried to look around. But at first he could not, for he seemed to be frozen from head to foot. Then he made a great effort, and he raised one hand to each of his temples and pressed his own head around as he would have turned a doll's. The candle was burning so low that it might as well have been out altogether, for any light it gave, and the room seemed quite dark at first. Then he saw something. He would not have believed that he could be more frightened than he had been just before that, but he was, and his knees shook, for he saw the doll standing in the middle of the floor, shining with a faint and ghostly radiance, her beautiful glassy brown eyes fixed on his. And across her face, the very thin line of the break that he had mended shone as though it were drawn in light with a fine point of white flame. Yes, there was something more in the eyes, too. There was something human, like Elsie's own, but as if only the doll saw him through them and not Elsie. And there was enough of Elsie to bring back all his pain and to make him forget his fear. Elsie, my little Elsie, he cried out loud. The small ghost moved, and its doll arms slowly rose and fell with a stiff mechanical motion. Papa, it said. It seems this time that there was even more of Elsie's tone echoing somewhere between the wooden notes that reached his ear so distinctly and yet so far away. Elsie was calling him. He was sure. His face was perfectly white in the gloom, but his knees did not shake anymore, and he felt that he was less frightened. Yes, child, but where? Where, he asked. Where are you, Elsie? Papa. The syllables died away in the quiet room. There was a low rustling of silk. The glassy brown eyes turned slowly away, and Mr. Puckler heard the pitter-patter of the small feet in the bronze kid slippers as the figure ran straight to the door. Then the candle burned again. The room was full of light, and he was alone. Mr. Puckler passed his hand over his eyes and looked about him. He could see everything quite clearly, and he felt that he must have been dreaming, though he was standing instead of sitting down, and he should have been if he had just waken up. The candle burned brightly now. There were the dolls to be mended, laying in a row on with their toes up. The third one had lost her right shoe, and Elsie was making one. He knew that, and he was certainly not dreaming now. He had not been dreaming when he had come in from the fruitless search, and had heard the doll's footsteps running to the door. He had not fallen asleep in his chair. How could he possibly have fallen asleep when his heart was breaking? He had to have been awake all the time. He had steadied himself, set the fallen chair upon its legs, and said to himself again very emphatically that he was a foolish old man. He ought to be out in the streets looking for his child, asking questions and inquiring at the police stations, where all accidents were reported, as soon as they were known, or at the hospitals. Papa. 
The longing, wailing, pitiful little wooden cry rang from the passage outside the door, and Mr. Puckler stood for an instant with a white face, transfixed and rooted to the spot. A moment later, his hand was on the latch. Then he was in the passage, with the light streaming from the open door behind him. Quiet at the other end, he saw the little phantom shining clearly in the shadow, and the right hand seemed to be beckoning him as the arm rose and fell once more. He knew all at once that it had not come to frighten him, but to lead him. And when it disappeared, he could walk boldly towards the door. He knew that it was in the street outside, waiting for him. He forgot that he was tired and had eaten no supper, and had walked many miles, for a sudden hope ran through and through him, like a golden stream of life. And sure enough, at the corner of the alley, and at the corner of the street, and out in Belgrave Square, he saw a small ghost flitting before him. Sometimes it was only a shadow where there was n- other light. But then the glare of the lamps made a pale green sheen on its little Mother Hubbard frock of silk. And sometimes, where the streets were dark and silent, the whole figure shone out brightly with its yellow curls and rosy neck. It seemed to trot along like a tiny child, and Mr. Puckler could almost hear the pattering of the bronze kid's slipper on the pavement as it ran. But it went very fast, and he could only just keep up with it, tearing along with his hat on the back of his head and his thin hair blowing by the night breeze, and his horn-rimmed spectacles firmly set upon his broad nose. On and on he went, and he had no idea where he was. He did not even care, for he knew certainly that he was going the right way. Then at last, a wide and quiet street, he was standing before a big, sober-looking door that had two lamps on each side of it, and a polished brass bell handle, which he pulled. And just inside, when the door opened, in the bright light, there was a little shadow, and the pale green sheen of a little silk dress. And once more, the small cry came to his ears. Less pitiful, more longing. Papa! The shadow turned suddenly bright, and out of the brightness, the beautiful brown glass eyes were turned up happily to his, while the rosy mouth smiled so divinely that the phantom doll looked almost like a little angel just then. A little girl was brought in soon after 10 o'clock, she said, quiet voice of the hospital doorkeeper. I think they thought she was only stunned. She was holding a big brown paper box against her, and they could not get it out of her arms. She had a long plait of brown hair that hung down as they carried her. She's my little girl, said Mr. Puckler, but he hardly heard his own voice. He leaned over Elsie's face in the gentle light of the children's ward, and when he had stood there a minute, the beautiful brown eyes opened and looked up to his. Papa, cried Elsie softly, I knew you would come. Then Mr. Puckler did not know what he did or said for a moment, and what he felt was worth all the fear and terror and despair that had almost killed him that night. But by and by, Elsie was telling her story, and the nurse let her speak, for there were only two other children in the room who were getting well and were sound asleep. They were big boys with bad faces, said Elsie, and they tried to get Nina away from me, but I held on and fought as well as I could till one of them hit me with something, and I don't remember any more. For I tumbled down, and I suppose the boys ran away, and somebody found me there. But I am afraid Nina is all smashed. Here is the box, said the nurse. We could not take it out of her arms till she came to herself. Should you like to see if the doll is broken? 
And she undid the string cleverly, but Nina was all smashed to pieces. Only the gentle light of the children's ward made a pale green sheen in the folds of the little Mother Hubbard's frock. The end. That was a good story. I think that one was a little better than the first one. Yeah. It's a good story, though. It's uh, almost Geppetto-ish. I guess in a way. So if like a, it's a porcelain doll versus a wooden boy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we got one more for your guys' listening enjoyment. If you're still awake. And if not, just listen to it some more. <laughs> if you're asleep, sweet dreams. <laughs> this one is called The Ghost's Summons. Wanted, sir, a patient. It was in the early days of my professional career when patients were scarce and fees scarcer. And though I was in the act of sitting down to my chop and had promised myself a glass of steaming punch afterwards, in the honor of the Christmas season, I heard, hurried instantly into my surgery. I entered briskly, but no sooner did I catch the sight of the figure standing, leaning against the counter, than I started back with the strange feeling of horror for the life of me I could not comprehend. Never shall I forget the ghastliness of that face, the white horror stamped upon my feature, the agony which seemed to sink the very eyes beneath the contracted brows. It was awful to me to behold, accustomed as I was to the scenes of terror. You seek advice, I began with some hesitation. No, I am not ill. You require then... Hush, he interrupted, approachingly, approaching more nearly and dropping his already low murmur to a mere whisper. I believe you are not rich. Would you be willing to earn a thousand pounds? A thousand pounds? His words seemed to burn my very ears. I should be thankful if I could do so honestly, I replied with dignity. What is the service required of me? A peculiar look of intense horror passed over the white face before me, but the blue-black lips answered firmly. To attend a deathbed. A thousand pounds to attend a deathbed. Where am I to go, then? Whose is it? Mine. The voice in which this was said sounded so hollow and distant that involuntarily I shrank back. Yours? What nonsense! You're not a dying man. You are pale, but you appear perfectly healthy. You... Hush! He interrupted. I know all this. You cannot be more convinced of my physical health than I am myself. Yet I know that before the clock tolls the first hour after midnight, I shall be dead. I shall be a dead man. But... He shuddered slightly, but stretched out his hand commandingly, motioning me to be silent. I am but too well informed of what I affirm, he said quietly. I have received a mysterious summons from the dead. No mortal aid can avail me. I am as doomed as the wretch whom the judge has passed sentence. I do not come either to seek your advice or to argue the matter with you, but simply to buy your services. I offer you a thousand pounds to pass the night in my chamber and witness the scene which takes place. The sum may appear to you extravagant, 
but I have no further need to count the cost of any gratification, and the spectacle you will have to witness is no common sight of horror. The words, strange as they were, were spoken calmly enough. But as the last sentence dropped slowly from the livid lips, an expression of such wild horror again passed over the stranger's face, that in spite of the immense fee, I hesitated to answer. You fear to trust the promise of a dead man. See here and be convinced, he exclaimed eagerly. And the next instance on the counter between us lay a parchment document. And following the indication of the white muscular hand, I read the words. And to Mr. Frederick Reed of 14 High Street, Alton, I bequeath the sum of 1,000 pounds for certain service rendered to me. I've had that drawn up within the last 24 hours, and I signed it an hour ago, in the presence of competent witnesses, and I'm prepared, you see. Now, do you accept my offer or not? My answer was to walk away across the room and take down my hat, then lock the door of the surgery communicating with the house. It was a dark, icy, cold night. And somehow the courage and determination which the sight of my own name in connection with a thousand pounds had given me flagged considerably as I found myself hurried along the silent darkness by a man whose deathbed I was about to attend. He was grimly silent, but as his hand touched mine in spite of the frost, it felt like burning coal. On we went, tramp, tramp, through the snow, on and on, till even I grew weary and at the length of my appalled ear struck the chimes of a church clock, whilst the close at hand I distinguished the snowy hillocks of a churchyard. Heavens! What's this awful scene of which I was about to witness to take place veritably amongst the dead? Eleven, moaned the doomed man. Gracious God! But two more hours, and that ghostly messenger will bring the summons. Come, come, for mercy's sake, let us hasten." There was about a short road separating us now from a wall which surrounded a large mansion, and along this we hastened until we reached a small door. Passing through this, in a few minutes, we were stealthily ascending the private staircase to a splendidly furnished apartment, which left no doubt the wealth of its owner. All was intensely silent. However, through the house, and about this room in particular, there was a stillness that, as I gazed around, struck me almost ghastly. My companion glanced at the clock at the mantel shelf and sank into a large chair by the side of the fire with a shudder. Only an hour and a half longer, he muttered. Great heaven. I thought I had more fortitude. This horror unmans me. Then, in a fiercer tone and clutching my arm, he added, Ha! You mock me. You think me mad. But wait till you see. Wait till you see. I put my hand on his wrist. From there, now a fever in his sunken eyes, which checked the superstitious chill which had been gathering over me and made me hope that, after all, my first suspicion was correct, that my patient was but the victim of some fearful hallucination. Mock you, I answered smoothly. Far from it, I sympathize intensely with you and would do much to aid you. You require sleep. Lie down and leave me to watch. He groaned, but rose and began throwing off his clothes and watching my opportunity. I slipped a sleeping powder 
which I had managed to put in my pocket before leaving the surgery, into the tumbler of, the cl- of claret that stood beside him. The more I saw, the more I felt convinced that it was the nervous system of my patient which required my attention, and it was with sincere satisfaction I saw him drink the wine and then stretch himself on the luxurious bed. Ha! I thought, as the clock struck twelve, and instead of a groan, the deep breathing of the sleeper sounded through the room. You won't receive any summons tonight, and I may make myself comfortable. Noiselessly, therefore, I replenished the fire, poured myself out a large glass of wine, and drawn the curtain so that the firelight should not disturb the sleeper. I put myself in a position to follow his example. How long I slept, I know not. But suddenly I rose with a start, and as a ghostly a thrill of horror, as ever remember to have felt in my stomach, something, what, I knew not, seemed near, something nameless, but utterly awful. I gazed around. The fire emitted a faint blue glow, just sufficient to enable me to see the room was exactly the same as when I fell asleep. But that the long hand of the clock wanted but five minutes of the mysterious hour, which was to be the death moment of the summoned man. Was there anything in it then? Any truth in the strange story he told? The silence was intense. I could not even hear a breath from the bed, and I was about to rise and approach, when again that awful horror seized me, and and at that same moment my eye fell upon the mirror opposite the door, and I saw. Great heaven! That awful shape! That ghastly mockery of what had been humanity! Was it really a messenger from the buried, the quiet dead? It stood there, invisible, death clothes. But the awful face was ghastly with corruption, and the sunken eyes gleamed forth a green, ghastly glare, which seemed a veritable blast of the infernal flames below. To move or utter a sound in that hideous presence was impossible. And like a statue, I sat and saw that horrid shape move slowly towards the bed. What was the awful scene enacted there, I know not. I heard nothing, except a low, stifled, agonized groan, and I saw that the shadow of the ghastly messenger bent over the bed. Whether it was some dreadful but wordless sentence its breathless lips conveyed as it stood there, I know not. But for an instant, the shadow of a claw-like hand from which the third finger was missing, appeared extended over the doomed man's head. And then, as the clock struck one clear, silvery note, it fell, and a wild shriek ran through the room. A death shriek. I'm not given to fainting, but I certainly confess that the next ten minutes of my existence was a cold blank. Even when I did manage to stagger to my feet, I gazed round vainly endeavoring to understand the chilly horror which still possessed me. Thank God, the room was rid of that awful presence. I saw that. So, gulping down some wine, I lightened a wax taper and staggered towards the bed. Ah, how I prayed that, after all, I might have been dreaming, that my own excitement imagination had been conjured up by some hideous memory of the dissecting room but one glance was sufficient to answer that. No, the summons had been indeed given and answered. I flashed a light over the dead face, swollen, convulsed, still with the death agony, but suddenly I shrank back. 
Even as I gazed, the expression of the face seemed to change. The blackness faded into a deathly whiteness. The convulsed features relaxed, and even as if the victim of that dreaded apparition still lived, and a sad, solemn smile stole over the pale lips. I was intensely horrified, but still I retained sufficient self-consciousness to be struck professionally by such a phenomenon. Surely there was something more than supernatural agency in all of this. Again, I scrutinized the death face, and even the throat and chest, but when the exception of a tiny pimple on one temple beneath a cluster of hair, not a mark appeared. To look at the corpse, one would have believed that this man had indeed died by the visitation of God peacefully whilst sleeping. How long I stood there I know not, but time enough to gather my scattered senses and to reflect that all things considered, my own position would be very unpleasant if I was found thus unexpectedly in the room of a mysteriously dead man. So, as noiselessly as I could, I made my way out of the house. No one met me on the private staircase. The little door opening into the road was easily unfastened, and thankfully indeed was I to feel again the fresh wintry air as I hurried along the road by the churchyard. There was a significant funeral soon in that church, and it was said that the young widow of the buried man was inconsolable. And then the rumors got abroad of a horrible apparition which had been seen on the night of the death, and it was whispered that the young widow was terrified and insisted upon leaving her splendid mansion. I was too mystified with the whole affair to risk my reputation by saying what I knew, and I should have allowed my share in it to remain forever buried in oblivion. And had I not suddenly heard that the widow, objecting to many of the legacies in the last will of her husband, indeed to dispute it on the score of insanity, and there great gradually arose the rumor on, of his belief in having received a mysterious summons. On this, I went to the lawyer and sent a message to the lady that, as the last person who had attended her husband, I undertook to prove his sanity, and I besought besought her to grant me an interview, in which I would relate as strange and horrible a story as ear had ever heard. The same evening, I received an invitation to go to the mansion. I was ushered immediately into a splendid room, and there, standing before the fire, was the most dazzlingly beautiful young creature I had ever seen. She was very small, but exquisitely made. Had it not been for the dignity of her carriage, I should have believed her a mere child. With a stately bow, she advanced, but did not speak. I come on a strange and painful errand, I began, and then I started, for I happened to glance full into her eyes. And from them down to the small right hand grasping the chair, The wedding ring was on that hand. I conclude you are the Mr. Reed, who requested permission to tell me some absurd ghost story of whom my late husband mentions here. As she spoke, she stretched out her left hand towards something, but what I knew not, for my eyes were fixed on that hand. Horror, white and delicate it might be, but it was shaped like a claw and the third finger was missing. One sentence was enough after that. Madam, all I can tell you is that the ghost who summoned your husband was marked by a singular deformity. The third finger of the left hand was missing, and I said sternly that 
and the next instant I had left that beautiful sinful presence. That will never be disputed the next morning, too, I received a check for 1,000 pounds. And the next news I heard of the widow was that she had herself seen that awful apparition and had left the mansion immediately. Interesting. She was a demon. She killed her husband. Yeah, but think about this, though. Deformity. I mean, was she truly missing that finger? Or Because they say when, like, demons, like, mimic humans or whatever, there's always going to be something about them that's not quite right. They're going to be missing something. Yes. So, I mean, I guess, depending on how you look at it, it can go... Either way. Either way. Or just however you interpret it. Yeah. That one was better. That was a good one. Yeah, I would say so. She killed her husband. Well, and if you Dastardly. Think, and if you think about it, right? He sounded like he, it sounded like he was an older man. Yeah. She was young. Yep. And he was rich. And so... Motive. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they call in the police business, a motive. That's right. Well, look, I really hope we kept you all enthralled. With, Not me. With our ghost stories. <laughs> you didn't keep me enthralled. Well, that's okay. That's I know. <laughs> that's okay. I, I, hope, I don't count. I hope we kept the audience enthralled. They probably turn it off during the first one. <laughs> They're not here. I really hope not. <laughs> I really hope you guys made it all the way through. And if you did... I'll give you a thousand pounds of sugar. <laughs> I didn't say what. Yeah, I'll pass. Yeah, we we hope you guys all have a wonderful holiday season. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to the start of season three next year when we record our new season. Yeah. And we'll be kicking that off with like a year in review and the places that we've been over the course of uh, 2022. Yep. Uh, some of the highlights from our investigation locations. Maybe some low lights. We're not sure yet. Yeah, we don't know. And uh, also, you know, what we're most looking forward to in 2023. Exactly. And what some of our plans are. We're going to the moon. We're going to investigate the moon. Okay. <laughs> Ghosts and aliens alike. Lay off the eggnog, would you? <laughs> <laughs> the good the good thing is that this is not the last episode of the year of season two. No, we got one more. And that will be coming out next week. Yep. And that one will be on Salt Air. Which All was right. our last investigation. investigation for the year. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have some special guests coming on. We will let them We'll let you guys all hear about that next week. Yep. So where can they find us? You can find us on Facebook at Paranormal Peeps Podcast, as well as Cold Spot Paranormal Research. And you can find us on Twitter at CPR Paranormal and on Instagram at Cold Spot underscore Paranormal underscore Research. And as always, stay ghosty, my peeps.
Oh. Ejaculated the butler. <laughs> I can't do it. That's what it says. I know I didn't read it wrong. I'm sure you didn't. Where do I start? <laughs> you going to be all right? Oh, how far we have fallen. <laughs> you, you're laughing. This is going to be a rough edit. <laughs> Here's the thing. We should put this in the bloopers at the end. Okay. Okay. Let me start over. Thank you for listening to the Paranormal Peeps podcast. You can find us on social media at Twitter at CPR Paranormal, on Facebook at Paranormal Peeps Podcast and Cold Spot Paranormal Research. And you can find us on Instagram at Cold Spot underscore Paranormal underscore Research.